0: welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. I'll start this intro slightly differently because today is a transition period for the traditional Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs podcast. For the past three years, I've had this podcast and I've posted on all of the traditional platforms, the likes of Spotify. But today is the transition episode where I'll be moving over the podcast from today, from purely the traditional podcasting platforms over to solely this my new youtube platform so i'm not sure if i can actually call it a podcast episode anymore but all the content from now on weekly will be going on this the youtube.com slash freedom machines channel on youtube for anyone new to this youtube channel which of course all of you will be it will be a complete continuation of how the podcast has worked where i'll be sharing The motorcycling news from the past week, I'll be sharing your thoughts on previous podcast episodes, whether positive or negative. I like to pride myself on it being as open a house as possible, whether you strongly disagree with me or whether you agree or anything in between. So please do share everything. The comments section below will be the key. So please do share all your thoughts there. And if you've got any longer stories, it's hi at thefreedommachines.com. All of the details will be in the written description. The reason I wanted to move over from the traditional podcasting platforms over to YouTube is because I hope that YouTube will bring in a more diverse, group of content that I can share. You can watch it visually, of course. You can listen to it. I can share some more of your stories and visual aids while I'm talking and running through all of the stories. You can, of course, comment below as well. And YouTube in general is far easier to monetize than a traditional podcasting platform. So I'd like to push it on in a slightly new direction. I will begin, as I always do, with one of your questions. So, just before I start, Welcome, everyone, to the brand new format. I begin with Chris, and this is in response to last week when I discussed a very left-field choice that someone shared with me for adventure bikes. Look, when we're looking for adventure bikes, I would say probably 90% of people go to the BMW GS as the benchmark. Okay, what am I looking for? BMW GS and then you 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 look down from the GS at other options but a lot of the time people go directly for the BMW GS that's the benchmark on which all other adventure bikes are based but there's a left field choice there from the US and that's the Buell Ulysses and I've got I've had some comments. I've had contact from Chris, who is a Buell Ulysses owner. Have a listen to this. Freddie, Buell Ulysses owner here. I just thought I'd chime in after you mentioned the bike on the last podcast with a bit of buyer's advice. Look, you can get a Buell Ulysses for around about the 3,000 pound mark if you wait for a private seller. And around about the 4,000 pound mark with a private seller would get you a mint example. I mean, just to chime in there. £4,000 for a mint example, seriously left field adventure bike choice. I don't think I've ever knowingly seen a Buell Ulysses on the streets in the UK. It's a huge amount of bike for the money, three to four K mark. It's got to be one of, the bargains. I mean, surely it's never going to drop a penny in value. It's always going to be a talking point, whatever bike meets you go to. You're going to have the problem of getting spare parts if you're not in the US, because I can imagine these are extremely rare, but imagine having a thing like this in the garage. Okay, I continue. The dealers will all ask for far too much and tend to hold on to the bikes for well over a year because of it, Not many dealers know about them, so try to buy from a private seller as they are quite eccentric bikes, so you want to buy from someone who understands them. A warning to all grease monkeys who assume that the Buells are easy to work on because they're based on a Harley-Davidson engine. Look, everything here is imperial and an absolute pain to get to. It's all doable, but it takes time to learn if you're used to working on Japanese bikes. Other than that, they're fantastic. Fun machines and a great option for adventure and touring if all that parallel twin offerings are too boring for you. But definitely test ride one before you buy, as they don't ride like anything else. Thanks, Chris. You know, Chris, I remember it wasn't the Ulysses, but it was the Buell, I think they called it the Buell Lightning. And that was in my shortlist when I was looking at the Triumph Speed Triple, and I was so close. Triumph Speed Triple or Buell Lightning. I went for the Speed Triple, and I'm probably glad I did, but to own a Buell, a bit like the Victories that have now come and gone, that's, that's a very, very special thing to have that Harley connection. Fantastic thing to own, I can imagine. I move on to Jeremy. Freddie. Just watched your video on the Triumph Bobber. Great. But how tall are you? Look, the bike fits you well, but I'm tall at six foot six and I don't want to look too big on the bike. Hence the question. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, I I always try and keep uh, a level of anonymity when I I share your thoughts. So I'll share your first name, but I'll make sure to keep your surname unless you want me to separate. I'll also keep any contact details separate unless you'd like me to share, for example, some pics of bikes or your Insta channel and I'll include it in the written description. So this is Jeremy. And Jeremy, I may be wrong, but looking at your surname, it could well be Dutch. So at six foot six, you're probably about the average height in Holland. The Bonneville that I rode or the Bobber that I rode A lot of people would say, even me at six foot one, I'm slightly too tall for it. But the one I tested had the forward controls and raised mini eight bars. And it's amazing what you can do to a bike to to elongate it and make it right for you. There are three big things, especially for bikes like this. You can put the forward foot controls on. So that spreads your legs out. So they're not hunched under you and you're not at right angle or so with your legs. So stretched out foot pegs, and then those mini eight bars, I know they're controversial, but lifting up the bars like that, and moving your feet forward, it completely transforms the bike. You can also get a more padded seat as well, to slightly raise the ride height, or at least your your feet angle in the seat height. But those two things, the mini eight bars and the forward controls, transformed it for me, but, Six foot six, six foot six is seriously tall. And I don't usually like to put people off a bike, but I'm going to say, Jeremy, you are, you're too tall. You need to be looking at something like the Harley Davidson Diner. I would say the absolute cutoff for Triumph Bobber, six foot three, six foot four, but at six foot six, you're too big, you're going to dwarf it. You need to look at a Diner or something. You can get a Diner Street Bob, for example, Facebook Marketplace, eight and a half thousand pounds, which means you're roughly in the ballpark of that Triumph Bobber. And if you want a Triumph, but the Bobber's too small, you could potentially look at the Triumph Thunderbird Storm, which I think should come in at about 7,000 pounds. That is a colossal bike, but for someone of your height, I would say it would suit you much better. So take a look at the Thunderbird Storm, take a look at the Harley Davidson Diner. Street Bob, they'll suit you better. You're too big, Jeremy, for that, I think. Let me know what you go for. I move on to Steve, Freddie. One of my fellow listeners last week was recounting a story when they nearly, ah, yes, was recounting a story of when they nearly rode down a no entry street on their Mod 2 motorcycle test. That's the test where you're out in the road with an examiner behind you. The examiner will often know that there is a no entry street coming up and use the phrase, take the next available right turn. He's trying to test your observation skills here and expects you to be looking for the signs. So if they use the phrase available, then it likely means that it might be a no entry turn and you have to use the next one. So that's in response to someone who was in desperate need of some tips on how to pass the Mod 2 test. Wise words, Steve. On to another Steve, Freddie. I'd like to start out by saying, as I have before, that electric bikes, they're just a pipe dream. They're just not gonna take off. Now, hydrogen power mixed with a little nitrous oxide. Yeah, yeah, that could work. Or it could be a real hold my beer moment. Still better than electric. I'd like to congratulate your friend in Hungary for joining the dark side and getting a Harley. Good for him. Now, I got to say I kind of laughed at the custom bike brother in Kent. As a member of the Harley counterculture, an old custom bike owner and builder, I had to laugh a little listening to him talk about how kick-starting and breaking down are kind of cool. He must be a young guy. Yes, it's kind of cool when you're in your 20s. But after decades of riding a hardtail, sitting on four inch seat springs, foot clutching, tank shifting, it will take its toll on you. Ask any old grey beard and he will tell you. He's got an old chopper in the garage, but he rides a newer, more comfortable bike. The brother's right, Freddie. All you got to do is build a sissy bar about three feet high and you could strap your own gear to this chopper for perfect two up riding. Just remember to bring some tools. And one last thing, if they're gonna ban tourists from renting scooters in Bali and little bikes, there's going to be a huge surplus of bikes for sale. I'd make a deal on that little brat style 175 you rented. That would be a great first bike for Monica, Steve. Yeah, Steve, onto that 175, you know, I, I now know 100%. Monica's had a few goes on the Honda Scoopy Automatic. Now I know it's going to be automatic scooters and specifically a Vespa for Monica. And it kind of leads into what you're saying because I've been there with these harder to run bikes. You know, we've got the manual chokes, sometimes carbs are all a bit harder. A lot of the time, the best bike is the bike that's easiest to ride. Example, I could go out and get, I mean, I say I could go out and get, Monica is more than capable of buying her own bike. Monica could go out and buy a Kawasaki W175. Cool looking custom bike, it looks great. And Monica loves the look of it. But I know what would happen if she bought that. She would ride it once, it would be slightly too difficult to ride, it would, Put a level of dread in Monica's mind every time she would think about actually using it. And guess what? She would never actually use it. However, get a Vespa with a top box, automatic, helmet storage, jump on, jump off. Transformative, transformative. She would use it because it's actually easy to use. You know, I watched a YouTube video And it's of Adam from Easy Rider Tenerife. And Adam, literally a week ago, go and check out his channel. I'll I'll leave a link if I can remember. Adam picked up from Barcelona a 1950 hard, what is it? It's a hardtail panhead Harley. It looks out of this world. And Adam decided to ride it from Barcelona down to Tenerife. I think it took him a couple of days or so. And watching Adam, who's a very experienced Harley rider, having to to prime the bike, having to kickstart it every time and then getting that mix slightly wrong. So he then had to leave the bike for 20 minutes to calm down before he tried to kickstart it and prime it again and then riding it and it's a hard tail and it's agony and there's no space for any luggage at all. And it looked like an experience, but I would say about 80% of the time looked like complete hell. That is not the kind of bike you're going to go to the garage and be like, yep, Perfect, I want to go and ride for coffee and I get back from the coffee. Yeah, I'll go out and I'll head off to the supermarket to pick up a bit of food. I'll just chuck the stuff in the pannier. It's not going to happen at all. And when we're in Bali here, it almost sounds bad. I I was quite delighted to give back the custom Kawasaki. W175 and get back on the little Honda Scoopy because the Honda Scoopy's got helmet storage. I can just chuck the helmet in, I jump on, it's just step through, it's so easy to ride. Different bikes for different situations, but I agree with you, Steve. I can totally imagine most Harley guys, they may well have a classic locked up in the garage, but the bike they ride is going to be within 10 years old. It's going to be a new Harley because they're the ones that are going to actually make you want to ride on a consistent basis. and not just ride to shows, for example. Moving on to Tim. Oh, Tim, thank you. Mm. Freddie, just a quick word about the pronunciation. So someone shared the the Honda Deauville with me last week and I had no idea how to pronounce it. Freddie, just a quick word about the pronunciation of Deauville, which is, as I'm sure you're aware, a famous French seaside resort in Normandy. In French, O is pronounced O literally the letter O and pronounced the same way. Uh, and it's basically the same as O in English. So the correct dictation would be the Honda Doville. Check out this link. Thank you, Steve. Uh, oh, thank you, Tim. I had, I had no idea, what was I calling it? The Juville, I think. Semi-awkwardly pronouncing where I knew I was wrong. You know, it's funny what, what bike names can do. I wouldn't say it's marketing genius calling a bike a Deauville, because it doesn't, it doesn't instill coolness and a level of heritage like some names, you know, the, the Bonnevilles and other, th- other things do. A lovely French town in the north of France doesn't get the heartstrings racing. But it did get me thinking here, actually, you, you kind of just piqued my interest, Tim, with prices of these may be popular at one point, but they certainly are not a bike that, that are going to be top of most people's list. So, how much can you get, what is probably a fairly unappealing bike to a lot of people, because it doesn't pull at the heartstrings, how much can you get a Honda Deauville 4 in the UK? My thinking is this is going to be a bargain. And if you're looking for bargaining, there's only one place to go, and that's Facebook Marketplace. And, you know you can pick these up for let me just give you a few numbers 1999 Honda Deauville 150 pounds but have a listen to this 79,000 miles on the clock another one 1,200 pounds for a Doville with 28,000 miles on the clock and these come fully kitted out with panniers you've got a world Beta at your hands you've got a continent crusher this bike will go anywhere you don't need to buy any storage for it it will be all day comfort it's a honda so it will never break down and have a li- listen to some of this if you're looking for a bike for the summer you're not going to go wrong There's, listen to the mileage and listen to the price the mileage indicates that this is a bike that is built to last this is honda quality at its best 1,100 pounds for a 2010 Deauville, 79,000 miles. Another one, 200 pounds. That's right, 200 pounds for Honda Deauville with 86,000 miles on the clock. I could go on and on, but if you're looking for an incredibly long-lived bike for peanuts, I don't think, I don't think you can get better than that. I move on to James, Freddie. I'm about to sit my full motorcycle license. I've been on the CBT for a year. That's the the simple license where you can ride a 125cc motorbike, no pillion at all. I've had that for a year. I'm 31 years old. I'm six foot two. I love the cruiser bike aesthetic. However, I use my current bike for everything from commuting to work to relatively long distance trips to see my friends. I had my eyes on a Harley Davidson Street 750 a now discontinued bike as they are cheap and in my opinion, very good looking. I went to the motorcycle show in London last month and spoke to the Harley rep there who said they are almost impossible to get parts for these days. Bear in mind, that's a Harley rep. But keep an eye out for the X350 and 500 coming soon. Look, while they're a while away, I've now switched my sights to a Karasaki Vulcan. At six foot two, it seems to fit my size better, and it also has good pillion space. But my question is this, why do you think street commuting bikes that have a more classic cruiser appearance are so few and far between, Do you have any recommendations that I may have missed? Look, the Rebel is low, scramblers are too small, actual Harleys are garage princesses. Help. Let's have a look at this, James. Harley-Davidson, so the X350 and the X500 from Harley-Davidson, these are their new, incoming, small motorcycle attempts. Through the years Harley-Davidson have tried making small bikes just like the one you mentioned the Street 750 I think they've had a few other attempts but in my opinion and I welcome any feedback here Harley-Davidson do not do well at deviating away from what they're best at and that's making big heavy great looking back to basics raw stunning cruisers. They don't do anything else that well, and I welcome anyone else to come back on me with this. And I'm having a look at the Harley Davidson X350. Look, it's an okay looking bike. It looks okay, but it looks on the generic side. It looks like it could be, and it's not an insult to the Japanese bikes, but it looks more like Harley Davidson are copying the Japanese bikes and slapping a Harley Davidson logo on the side of it. Harley-Davidson don't have history of deviating away from it. Um, So yes, the X350 and the 500 are coming. They may well be okay bikes, but Harley-Davidson, every time they leave their core, they leave everything Harley about it. Everything's left behind. They don't seem to, to want to do or have grasped on to what Royal Enfield are doing. Harley-Davidson have got something that's intangible that so many companies would kill to have. They've got a brand name that almost no one can touch, and with that brand name comes the association with cool, badass-looking bikes. Why don't Harley-Davidson filter that down? Royal Enfield have proven that you can make genuinely cool, small-capacity motorcycles that are desirable, that people desperately want, They've got every element of cool of the bigger bikes. Look at the classic 350. Look at the the new Super Meteor. Look at the Interceptor. They've proven it can be done, yet Harley Davidson keep deviating away from their core, and I don't understand why, because Royal Enfield have proven that you can make good-looking bikes, good-looking small-capacity bikes, but I don't think Harley will ever quite grasp it. Um, so uh, I would probably side with you James and not actually wait for those two. I mean, it's fascinating to even the Harley rep confirmed that trying to get parts for this Street 750, almost impossible. Those Street 750s were never popular when they were new and they never built up a cult following. So you're not going to have a bike with a cult following of loyal followers who are going to be able to supply and provide and have the desire to give these parts for years to come. That will be a fairly hard bike to maintain in years to come. Classic Harley's should be much easier because you've got all of the Americans who love the classic Harley's and they will always make sure they've got supplied parts readily available. For, but for the Street 750, I don't think so. But why? To answer your question, why aren't there more street-slash-cruiser motorbikes that can be good for commuting? Smaller-sized things, such as the the Honda Rebel 500. Uh, My honest feeling with this is that the Americans, Harley and Indian motorcycles, have got the market completely wrapped up. Everything else other than the American cruisers is seen as either an imitation or a stepping stone to one of those American cruisers. The Japanese often come along with it and they have some very, very good examples in my eyes. Bikes I often rate highly even though I've never ridden them. The Honda Shadow, the Yamaha Dragstar, these would be fairly high up in my list, I was, if, list if I was looking for something like that. They're fairly low profile, you've got Japanese reliability, they're much better value than the Harleys but you don't have the desirability factor and they've tried so many times the Japanese to make cruisers, and I just don't think they're big enough sellers to warrant them continuing to push them to the same level that Harley Davidson do. Plus the fact that Royal Enfield, Triumph and Harley Davidson, Harley Davidson by far at the top of the tree, I would say with Royal Enfield second, they sell the lifestyle better than anyone. You go into a Harley Davidson de- dealership, well I do anyway, And I leave just desperately trying to apply for loans to buy a Harley Davidson. And the same happens when I go into Royal Royal Enfield dealership. I leave wanting a Royal Enfield. I go into a Honda dealership, like I've been into in, I think it was Ipswich. I went into a Honda dealership, just found the back of a Triumph dealership. It was the most boring dealership I've ever went into, I've ever been into. I had no sense of passion at all. It was devoid of any kind of soul. And people who buy cruiser motorcycles, they want to buy into a lifestyle, just as people who buy modern classic motorcycles. And unfortunately, in my eyes, the Japanese bikes don't draw into those, the classic heritage, the marketing, the same way the British brands and the American brands do. I don't walk into Japanese dealerships and leave with anything emotively grabbing me at all. I I look and I think, I'm sure, I'm sure that Kawasaki Z900RS is a brilliant bike, but my Lord, I wanna be sold on the lifestyle side of things. And the Japanese are just not as good as especially the Americans at that. And that is my feeling why we just don't see many of these street cruisers. And as I said before, Harley-Davidson just do not do well when they deviate away from their core. So. I'm going to guess I'm going to guess, James, that you you have a budget, just judging on the bikes you're looking at, of around about four and a half thousand pounds. What can we look at for you instead of instead of that Harley Street seven fifty? I've got four bikes for you here. Well four bikes including the Vulcan. I would say the Vulcan's a very good choice. Keep that in your shortlist, I'm a big fan of that. It's great value, it looks good, it will be reliable. On top of that, have a look at the Yamaha XVS 1100. Now you may initially laugh at an 1100 after just passing your test, but this will be an incredibly easy bike to ride. And I think you may be pleasantly surprised by the insurance premium. It's seen as a a slow bike that isn't going to be top of the list for thieves. And of course, the performance isn't there to get yourself into too much trouble. I would have a look at the Yamaha XVS 1100. You can get that for about £4,500. I'll also have a a look at a bike that's got a, a strong link for me personally. And I've mentioned it before on other podcast episodes. Triumph Speedmaster 865. It's... Got the exact same engine as my Bonneville 865. It's got about 60 horsepower. It's incredibly slim, low pro, it's incredibly slim profile. So lane splitting will be brilliant. It will be an incredibly good commuter bike. It's unbelievably cheap to run, cheap to insure. I mean, it's dirt cheap. Don't worry about the 865 CC engine. That will cost you nothing to insure. And you can have a backrest on it so strap a backrest to it strap two panniers to it i think if you go on facebook marketplace you can get one for four thousand pounds you can head off into the country you can tour europe you can commute on it that bike can do anything you want it to do and it's four thousand pounds and finally i'll chuck in a bike that you said you wouldn't look at the harley davidsons But take a look at the Harley Sportster, four and a half grand on Auto Trader. I'm sure you'll easily be able to get a Sportster for under 4,000 pounds on Facebook Marketplace. Again, backrest on the back, get two panniers. They don't need to be garage queens. That only needs to be a garage queen if you want it to be a garage queen. You know, the Harley Sportsters aren't made specifically to be garage queens, they'll be very well, Built long-lived bikes, and that again can do anything. And so what? You ride it through the winter, you get a bit of rust on it. Harleys are so good-looking; they they look good with a bit of wear and tear. James, let me know what you go for. Send a pic with what you do choose, and happy shopping. But I would say, just in general, you know, these these bikes, especially for me in my eyes, the Harley Sportster, the Speedmaster, these are dream-level bikes that maybe you think. You know, can I get a sports dress, my first bike? Yes, you can. I know plenty of people who've gone out and got a sports dress, their first bike. Go out there, get the dream bike first of all. It's not much more than anything else you're going to be looking at, and it will never drop a penny from that. Moving on. Lance in Texas. Okay, Freddie, I'd like your opinion on a decision I need to make. Look, I have in the past and enjoyed a 2001 Yamaha R6. I had to sell it when I got married because we needed the money. Twelve years later, we're doing financially well and own five rental properties and a business. Now, the way we've structured our finances, most of our income is spent on rental mortgages, taxes, insurance, etc or after all is said and done, uh, rental insurance and business, or, sorry, or the money is returned back into the business. We realistically can save around $3,000 a month after all is said and done, but it never fails at around about the $5,000 to $10,000 in savings mark, we hit that point, something keeps coming up and getting us back out of that zone. For example, we need to pay for rental repairs, taxes, bills, Another investment comes up, etc., etc. I've been wanting a Triumph Bonneville, and I have uh, and I found some for around about the $4,500 mark. Well, that's interesting because that is bang on UK prices. Very interesting. My question to you, Freddie, is this Do I bite the bullet, spend £4,500, and hope that no emergency expenditures come up until we can save the money again? as well as deal with the stress in that time frame, Or do I just wait until I can spend the $4,500 and still keep within my five to 10,000 pound savings mark, my, my comfort blanket, which so far in the past 12 months hasn't worked? Or do I settle for a cheaper bike just to scratch the itch and ride it a bit? Still disappointed that I didn't quite get what I wanted. Lance from Texas. Lance, you're almost describing exactly my point. I was probably not, almost certainly not in quite the, the financial situation you were in. But I was at CarDo, which is a grocery delivery company. And I had a Suzuki Bandit from 2002, and it, you know it was not my dream bike at all. It wasn't. I didn't get that feeling every time I rode it. I rode it because I love biking. I didn't ride it because I get that deep down feeling of connection that I'm on a bike that is really me. And I was at cardo and I just thought, "Come on, Fred. Come on, you. You know, you love your bikes. The Bonneville is is for me almost." The entry-level dream bike, for me in my mind, that's how I saw it, about 3,650 pounds. so Almost bang on, Lance, what you're on, money-wise at least for the Bonneville. And I was on around about 1,500 pounds a month after taxes at Accado. And I did some sums and I worked out I could probably just about afford 89 pounds, which is what it was. £89 a month in loan repayments. And I did it and I bought the Bonneville and it worked. It was just okay. It was just on my limit. Even when I was in a fairly low paid job that I was at the time, the happiness brought to me by buying the Bonneville, despite losing what wasn't an insignificant amount of money at the time, the happiness the Bonneville bought me more than paid off for the hit that I took on a monthly basis from those loan repayments. On top of that, Lance, I can vouch for this. The Bonnevilles cost nothing. They cost nothing. They do not get a good enough rep for this. They are ludicrously rugged, well-built bikes. They never ever go wrong. If they go wrong, it will be so easy to fix yourself that I can fix it. And if I can fix a Bonneville by myself, then anyone can. I have in four years, Lance, taken the Bonneville on one unsuccessful trip to the mechanic where the mechanic couldn't fix it and I ended up just changing the battery and that sorted the problem. So if we take that out of the equation, not once have I ever had anything fixed from a mechanic on my Bonneville. It costs me about hundred pounds in road tax a year. It costs me 80 pounds in insurance. And it's cost me on average, including that garage bill over the course of four years, not including my ludicrous modifications that I often get ripped into, not including those me going back and forth with putting stuff on, taking stuff off. I would say about 130 pounds a year I've had plenty of stories of those doing 100,000 miles plus with no issues at all. I would add one thing, Lance. I I won't go into too much detail because I've said it before, but I did a similar thing with my Jaguar XK where I bought my dream car for £10,000. That £10,000 took every penny of business savings. At that point, I had my own business. It took every penny of the business money. And it meant i had no buffer we then had two very tight months in business and that ruined my life for a few months because i pushed myself too far to get the jag i then had expensive repair bills that further crippled me and that actually stopped me going on holiday and that slightly ruined my life so that was a mistake but i think if you find a happy medium with something like the bonneville you will not regret it don't buy an interim bike take the initial hit go out and get the dream bike the bonneville you will not regret it lance i honestly think you're in a good enough financial position to get there without any issues at all once you buy it three four months time you caught up, you're back to where you used to be, you'll be dancing. Moving on to Sean, Freddie. Firstly, just to clear up something, I'm actually a fan of DCT. I heard a few comments about them being big scooters, but I'm a fan. Anyway, I'm moving on. In fact, before you move on, this is from Sean. Before you move on, Sean, thank you for that because dct if you don't know it's it's a kind of to the best of my knowledge automatic transmission that i think honda is starting to utilize in essence it's automatic transmission some people saying it's turning bikes into big scooters i'm more on the fence leaning slightly towards look it's just a tech like traction control rider aids some people love it some don't so i'm i'm leaning on the side more it could enhance some people's riding experience I move on. Exciting times ahead though, Freddie. Since my spill on the Kawasaki Ninja, my confidence in it has gone. So I'm shipping it on. Having listened intently to you and other contributors on the podcast, it's time to find the right bike for me. Now, it may surprise you to know that I'm actually looking at smaller displacement motorcycles. I actually think it'll be more relaxed and more fun. So Saturday is a big day when I'll be trying a few bikes. Sean, you're not messing about. KTM 390 Duke and Adventure, BMW 310R, Suzuki SV650, which is actually funnily enough where it all began back in 2010, and finally the Honda Rebel 500. That's four bikes in one day. For me, I want something relaxed. I want to take in the scenery, take some photos, enjoy life. I've decided to break it all down and just start again, start small and see where I go from there. I may even document it all. Yeah, Sean, I've been in the exact same situation as you, and I know exactly what it's like, starting off on these 600cc bikes or so, graduating up to a a huge 1,000cc bike, and then juggling with and and playing around with the idea of, my Lord, do I do I go backwards? Am I regressing if I actually go to something with far less CC, far less horsepower? Am I slowly giving up on biking or actually will this hugely enhance my experience? And for me, It totally changes what biking's all about when you're on a more relaxed kind of bike. I totally get why people buy sports bikes 100%, but I I truly believe that people ride slower bikes more. I'll never forget when I was in, Sean, I was in Valencia and I was out on a test day with Michelin, testing out different tires, and I was talking to the different people there and we were out on the kawasaki h2 we were out on other different ducati sports bikes racing around the valencian hills and these were all journalists used to riding really fast powerful bikes and i was chatting to all of them and i said to them what bikes do you have and they were all listing off their different sports bikes and it's just fascinating to see what a broad church biking is, because I was the only one with a modern classic bike. And the fascinating thing I found is that a good 30% of these motorbikers had sports bikes in their garage, but they actually didn't ride on the road. They had sports bikes and they went off on track days and things like that. But road riding, minimal. Some of them actually didn't, didn't ride on the road at all. They just kept their sports bikes for some track days and other things like that, but day-to-day riding they didn't do, and it's, it's just really interesting to me maybe not specifically solely what what sports bikes uh, do to influence kind of rider you are but also just what us riders uh, in general are like some people have bikes just for track days some people have bikes just for off-roading some people want a bike to be able to use on a daily basis and some just like doing tours once or twice a year and it's finding out the kind of rider that you are and sometimes you do have to go back to basics to understand that so Sean Share with me your journey, let me know what you think. I hear universally good things about all four of these, so you've clearly got a good eye for bikes. The SV650 feels like it's been around forever, but I only hear good things about that bike. It's meant to be a fantastically characterful thing. Sean, thank you. I move on to Andrew. Freddie, having not ridden a bike since my Honda Melody moped when I was 16, It would be 24 years before I was back on two wheels. In 2008, I took my CBT and bought a new, just out, Yamaha YZF R125. Work colleagues were all into sports bikes, so I steered in that direction. After two years, I passed my bike test and bought a new Kawasaki ZX-6R. Over the 11 years I owned the bike. Oh, I remember reading this. Now this is fascinating. I didn't put this here, but it leads on perfectly, Andrew. Very interesting to hear this. So I continue. Over the 11 years I owned the bike, I only covered just over 5,000 miles with the last six years only going to the MOT test center and back on my Kawasaki ZX6R. The bike was fantastic, but just not comfortable to ride. So in October 2021, I changed it for a Royal Enfield Continental 650 GT. I thought this was a bike for me: easy to ride, great reviews, great value for money, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But the bike just wasn't me, which I realized after just a couple of months. I started watching a lot of YouTube videos on adventure type bikes, such as the BMW GS, Africa Twin, etc. And I find and I found out about DCT. I then found the Honda NC Seven Hundred and Fifty X DCT and promptly ordered one, which I picked up in July, twenty twenty two. I absolutely love it. No more aching clutch. Um, no more heavy hand in traffic very good riding position and full control of gears in manual mode or just leave it in auto and let the bike do the rest i'd actually like an africa twin honda dct in the future i think i finally found the style of bike that i like thanks for the content of the podcast see if you can get the honda rebel 1100 dct for review and i'm sure you would love it see it just goes to show andrew the kind of bike you like we're all so different how many bikers i always think this how many bikers can buy a bike ride it for two to three hundred miles a year actually a bit like andrew did and think maybe biking's not for me because i'm just not riding the bike you know maybe i should just sell the bike because i'm just not using it when actually unbeknownst to them They are, or they could be a biker, but they just haven't found the bike that they want to use on a daily basis. And yes, it can tug at your heartstrings, but the reality is as important to that, it has to be a bike that you want to ride because it's actually comfortable, it actually suits your lifestyle, your needs. And for Andrew, for you to find this in the Honda NC750 with the DCT, fantastic news, delighted to hear it. And I'm sure that Honda, I'm sure I saw it. It's, it's the bike where you open up the fuel tank and it's got helmet storage in the fuel tank. I don't think I've ever seen another bike like it. It's incredibly useful with that. My old neighbor used to have one as well and he raved about it. He had the Honda NCT or the, the Honda NC750 and a Harley Sportster. And I, I remember he ended up selling the Harley Sportster. And getting another one back eventually but the honda dct interestingly was always the bike he kept as his go-to bike even when he sold the harley sportster great to hear from that and andrew it leads back i know i said it before but with with barley if i had the kawasaki w175 here you know it's hard riding here i wouldn't ride as much but on that little automatic honda scoopy I'm not joking, I'm probably out five times a day. It's just so simple to ride. Moving on to JB in Scotland. Oh, this is nice. So JB's got a, a 1985 custom Yamaha V-Max 1200 that he's, he's modified and he's sending off to shows. I, I just can't believe this is a 1985 model. It's the same model as the year I was born, 85. And it shows that with bikes, we've reached this this period where bikes just cannot get any better looking because that 1985 custom Yamaha VMAX 1200 could be straight out of a showroom. It looks absolutely incredible. And with those modernized touches, that looks every bit as good as any other bike in the market. And I'm sure in the UK, we have what is it? I think it's. The 40 year old, where well, once a motorbike gets to 40 years old, it becomes, I'm sure, and tell me if I'm wrong, MOT exempt and, and congestion charge or, or ULES, ultra low emissions zone exempt. So once any vehicle gets to 40 years old, you don't need to MOT it. I think it's tax exempt as well, and you don't need to worry about any low emission zones. And I can't believe it, 1985, that means, JB, in three years' time, you won't have to worry about any tax, MOT, or ultra-low emission zones. And 85, we're now getting to a point with motorbikes. 40-year-old motorbikes, mid-1980s, that's really the start of when motorbikes became reliable. Everyday modes of transport where you're not desperately stressing out if it can start or not. And if it's true that electric motorbikes electric motorbikes petrol bikes may soon be a thing of the past these kind of bikes v-twins 1200cc muscle bikes they will be the most desirable the most in-demand bikes because we'll look at them with rose tinted goggles i continue on this in this frame with jb because he sent me over moving on from electric because if, well, if you're new to the, the new format on YouTube and it's the first time you've watched this, I, I increasingly believe electric will not be the mainstream future for cars and, and motorbikes. I really believe we're going to come up with something that very possibly makes more sense. I believe it's just too restrictive with electric. It hasn't moved on quickly enough things are going to change whereby there will be new alternative fuels that will be used in internal combustion engines. I don't think electric could be any more than city transport, city cars, city motorbikes with short ranges. So JB in response sent this over. And this is from The Guardian. In Australia, domestic aviation represented 8% of transport emissions for 2019. That is high. In late September, the first fixed-winged passenger electric aircraft took off from Grant County International Airport in the U.S. state of Washington. The nine-seater charter plane known as Alice soared 1,000 meters for eight minutes. I continue. And Bader Auto or Badder Aero, a company developing a two-seater electric aircraft for use in pilot training and whose co-founder Barry rogers set a record for the longest journey by electric aircraft which was a seven day 18 stop flight across South Australia in June 2021 it's interesting that because I did say on the last episode that electric it's not going to be the future for planes. And JB, I do actually still think that. I just think looking at these times, what are we looking at? 18 flights, stop flight from South Australia in June, and an eight minute flight of a th- soaring 1,000 meters. I think that emphasizes the restrictions, JB, I really do. The restrictions of electric, yeah, they can work fine for short distances, but range-wise, I don't think it will ever get there unless you're building things that are five times the weight of internal combustion i think electric's just too restricted there's one other point from from jb i found this very interesting to read and this is from motorcycle news mcn sharing a a triumph story on triumph's vision for the future and green fuels triumph's chief product officer steve Sargent, spoke exclusively to mcn and he said i think what we're finding with moto e as a lot of us are finding through our electric motorcycle projects is that you're just massively restricted by the range the plan is to then move to e100 fuel by 2027 with the developments made here uh, and I hope to feed in to production motorcycles. So changing the fuel, making the fuel in internal combustion engines more environmentally friendly, moving to E100 within four years. A higher quality ethanol, a higher quality of ethanol reduces the need to drill for as much crude to make petrol, thus lowering net carbon emissions. C- Sargent continued, I think what they're finding from Moto E." as a lot of us are finding through our electric motorcycle projects is that you're just so massively restricted. If you're looking at the technology that currently exists in batteries for electric vehicles, and if you look at the projections for how efficiency of those batteries might improve over 10 to 15 years, I think it's quite clear that the technology is not going to replace what you can get your current petrol engine motorcycle to do. So whether the two energy sources will sit alongside each other is largely out of manufacturers' hands with the government policy determining what will power the bikes of tomorrow. See, this is what I've always said. The government have got the blinkers on, pushing electric, and it seems that they're not going to be open-minded to changing this. But I've seen now growing talk in Europe of Italy and Germany and other countries now trying to get rid of this European ban on selling internal combustion vehicles in 2035, saying, look, why can we not at least be open-minded to the fact that there could be other forms of fuel that can replace the traditional fuel, but be used in our current engines so we can keep all of these vehicles on the road. You're not going to suddenly want to be getting all these vehicles off the road. We could find a fuel, and things are progressing here, to put in internal combustion engines. Could that be the future? Or are governments too closed-minded to be open to these kinds of things? Uh, This is Rob actually. Rob gives gives his thoughts from the US, and I'll just read this briefly to wrap up here. Universal hydrogen takes to the air with with, uh, the largest hydrogen fuel cell ever to fly. This is from TechCrunch. Battery alternative powering aircraft with safe, abundant hydrogen. This company will produce aircraft engine conversion kits. Here we go. So a company will now produce aircraft engine conversion kits for existing planes, former Airbus CTO says. So in essence, the universal hydrogen takes to the air with the largest hydrogen fuel cell ever to fly. The test flight shows progress of hydrogen fueled aircraft. It was a 15 minute test flight on a modified Dash 8 aircraft. It was short, but it showed that hydrogen could be a viable form of fuel for short hop passenger aircraft, that is, If universal hydrogen and others in the emerging world of hydrogen flights can make the technical and regulatory progress needed to make it a mainstream product. The fuel cell operated throughout the flight generated up to 800 kilowatts of power and produced nothing. And I'm quoting here, but water vapor and smiles. But it's interesting to note that that test flight hydrogen fuel cell 15 minutes not far off the electric equivalent test in an airplane right i'll end it there thank you so much everyone for chiming in sharing your thoughts please do let me know your thoughts in the comments if you've got anything to share please do share it in the comments and you can also send any emails with your stories and pictures to hi at thefreedommachines.com Thank you so much all for listening. Thanks so much all for watching, I should say. And I will see you all in the next one.